Please be seated. My name's Taylor Reevely. Uh, I am happily husband to Andy and daddy to two-year-old Cedar and two-month-old Eden. And when I sleep, I am very good at sleeping. But sleep has eluded a couple of us for the last 59 nights. Not that anyone's been keeping track or anything. Most reasons for being awake at 3 a.m. are ridiculous. But for some reason, feeding a baby, changing a poopy diaper, willingly being covered in vomit, has become a culturally acceptable reason to be awake at such an ungodly hour. Perhaps even a noble reason. And perhaps that's how it should be, by design. That a baby has needs that only its parents can meet. Needs which are often expressed in the middle of the night. The baby, every baby, has a right and a need for its parents to bear its weakness. The parents, every parent, has an obligation to wake up in the middle of the night to bear that weakness. And I'm talking about the church. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 15 as we consider our rights and our obligations as members of Christ's church. And while you're turning, I want to catch you up to where we are now in the book of Romans. We spent over a year in Romans 1 through 11 as the Apostle Paul laid the theological foundation for life that is lived in response to the gospel. And when we turn the page into chapter 12, there was a major transition with a therefore I urge you brothers in view of the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And what has unfolded in chapters 12 through 14 has been this instruction of gospel living as gospel people, particularly as it pertains to unity within the church. And so today... We begin Romans 15. Would you please follow along with me as I read? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And if I were to, to attempt to sum up that introduction to the conclusion of this section on unity in a sentence, it might sound something like this. Imitate Christ being sustained by the word of God to the glory of God. Imitate Christ in his humility, his selflessness, his sacrifice, being sustained encouraged and comforted by God's word to the glory of God. And these three movements are interdependent upon each other. 
For you cannot imitate Christ as you are called to unless you are sustained by God's word. And you cannot glorify God as you are designed to and called to unless you are imitating Christ as you are called to and commanded to. And so would you first consider with me how we might be imitators of Christ in his sacrifice as we begin in verse 1, which is a command that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now for the first time in this letter on unity, the Apostle Paul is talking about the strong. Up to this point he's been talking about the weak, particularly the Jewish Christians that have entered into Christianity with the baggage of tradition that has accompanied them, who are governed by their conscience restricted by their conscience to live a certain way and expression of their faith against the Gentile Christians who have come into Christ and the gospel um, with, without the baggage of tradition and are free to express their faith in certain ways that the other um, party might be offended by. And so the strong that he's addressing here now are those who are strong in faith and strong in freedom. And often we would probably use the word mature to describe this kind of strength. Those of us who are mature, who basically get confused with Jesus anytime someone looks at us, have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. The strong have two obligations. An obligation to first bear with the failings of the weak and an obligation not to please themselves. But this verse is oddly translated in the ESV. If that's what you're reading, it would say, the fa- bear with the failings of the weak, which I think is better translated to bear, omitting the preposition with, the weaknesses of the weak. And the significance is enormous in the interpretation. For to bear with something, uh, I always heard this in context of bear with your sisters as like a, a tolerate their their treatment of you kind of thing. And it has this connotation of tolerance, of put up with, of let it roll off your back. But the image of to bear is to carry or pick up. It is not tolerant, it is, or passive, it is active and intentional in this relationship. And the second is with the failings of the weak. I, I don't feel that's appropriate, but rather the weaknesses of the weak, or the things that are not strong in the not strong. So the strong have an obligation to bear with the things that are not like them in the people that are not like them. Notice it's not a bearing the people, but it's a bearing the weakness. And this activity is surprisingly characteristic of Jesus, who in the servant song Um, In Isaiah 53, it says of him, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And later he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We who are strong, mature in faith and freedom, have an obligation to bear with, to carry, the things that perhaps are frustrating 
or disappointing or challenging in the lives of the people who are not like us. And the second obligation that the strong have is not to please themselves. No comment needed. But this is, this is terribly inconvenient. And this is terribly difficult. And at times terribly frustrating. To set aside my own rights for the sake of someone else. My own desires and comfort and needs for someone else. Poopy diapers at 3 a.m., for example. The parent has every right, really, to please themselves, to turn the baby monitor off, to do as they please, which would be to sleep. Instead, By not pleasing themselves, it takes an active form of showing up and bearing the burdens of the baby by feeding and changing and burping and putting the baby back to sleep. Someone who's not pleasing themselves shows up to play, shows up to serve. And it'd be one thing if the parent said, I show up and I enforce the law Baby, the bottle's over there, the potty is over there, and then figure out how to start that burping reflex thing, and then go back to sleep. It's one thing to say, enforce the law on those who are weak. And as strong people who are so prone to please ourselves, that's the proclivity. It's to show up and say, well, this is what being a Christian looks like this particular mode or method of living out faith. This is the law you must follow if you're going to be a good Christian, weaker brother. So get it together. I don't know how you're going to do it, but figure it out. The strong are obligated to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please themselves. But instead, in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And now the, uh, the audience has shifted. No longer is he speaking just to the strong who are not to please himself, but now to everybody who must please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And the last time Paul talked about a neighbor was in Romans 13, and he commands to love your neighbor, for love does no wrong to a neighbor. And again, he's specifically speaking now of this context of the Christian community. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, you look around and everyone that you live life with is your neighbor. And in this context, narrowly, everyone that you live this Christian life with is your neighbor. So you should look to the person next to you and please them for their good, to build them up person in front of you, the person behind you, the person in your life group, the person who irritates you, the person whose political views or views on liturgy and tradition differ than you, please them for their good to build them up. This act of pleasing is, it is qualified. It's qualified by a for his good and to build him up. 
So this good that you're working toward, that you're uh, pleasing your neighbor by, is not merely some like broad picture good that you know that they can't see or feel. For example, I know that for a two-month-old, it will be good for them to learn how to eat for themselves, to learn how to go to the potty by themselves, to grow up to be an independent, strong woman themselves. But that's not pleasing my baby for her good. Pleasing my baby for her good shows up in the middle of the night and says, you know what, right now, that will be good for you, yes, but right now it would be really good for you for you to eat, and I'll make that for you. And for someone to, to clean you. And I'll pick that up. But the audience here is not merely that the strong please their neighbor for their good to build them up, but that everybody, which would mean that the weak also are pleasing the strong for their good to build them up. And I've tried to imagine what that would look like for a two-month-old to please me for my good to build me up. And the analogy probably breaks down. But I would imagine something like a, a, a coo, a cuddle, a smile, and a thank you would be probably enough for me to be like, feeling great, built up, and ready to do it again tomorrow. And the goal of this good pleasing, this pleasing for the neighbor's good, is qualified by that to build him up phrase. And I think you're getting a picture here of this spiritual life cycle of a parent and a child, a parent in the faith and a child in the faith, a strong person in the faith and a weak person in the faith, being brought up, built up to become a strong person in the faith. And that strong person now in turn is building up the weak person in their faith, who is now in turn building up the next generation of weak in their faith. And I have to say that my aim in making these bottles in the middle of the night and changing these poopy diapers is not so that I will get to do it forever. There is a better goal for her edification that she would be built up, that she would grow to be this independent, autonomous person who can make her own food. And that's the goal of this pleasing for the good, is that the person whose weakness you are shouldering or the person whose strength you are benefiting from would be built up to do it again, to do it on their own next time as they are built up. But this is ridiculously difficult. It sounds perhaps even utopian or ideal that this is how the Christian community would work. I think we wish this as a nation. I think we wish this as a church. And this isn't just coming out of nowhere, though. This isn't just Paul spouting off his ideal for how the church should live. But instead, in asking the question why, he begins verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
And so that, that little word for is introducing now a, a, a cause or a rationale for this kind of behavior. In Paul quotes scripture, in my mind he could have written new words of scripture like he did to the Philippian church in chapter 2 where he says, well, why do you need to live this way? Well, let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Or the reason, the example of Christ that he points to could have been directly from the life of Christ. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, follow my example. But instead, Paul quotes the Old Testament scriptures at this point. Specifically, Psalm 69, 9. And I want you to keep your finger in Romans 15 and turn to Psalm 69. We'll spend time there in just a moment. But it's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament recognizing that the prayer David prays in Psalm 69 is similar. It's the expression and emotion in prayer and life that Jesus prays during the week of his passion, which is the week before his death. And so it could be said in Roman or in Psalm 69:9 that when when it prays that the reproaches against you I have borne is specifically referring to the death of Jesus. And so Psalm 69.9 is foreshadowing specifically Jesus' death. And he uses this as an example because perhaps David is, is writing this and he says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me as a kind of passive injustice. I did nothing to deserve this. I did nothing to want this. And it's happening to me. So God, save. But by connecting Jesus to those same words, you get a different picture. It's no longer a passive injustice of the ones who have offended God have now offended Jesus. He's borne those offenses. Now it's a, I'm actively stepping into bear the reproach against God on their behalf. And so we understand Psalm 69 differently in a different light through the lens of Jesus than merely through the lens of David. I think this illustration in Psalm 69 is a bit hyperbolic. Uh, It's hyperbolic because the offenses that Paul is calling you to bear are pretty small. Usually most of them are trite. Some of them are weighty. But none of them compare to the reproach Jesus bore on your behalf. It's as though he's saying, you who are kind of strong, bear with the not so awful weaknesses of the weak, the little things that tick you off, because Jesus, who is absolutely strong, has put up with you. Not only put up with you, but borne your offense in his body on the cross for you. In fact, Romans 5, 4 says that while we were still weak, you hear that language, 
at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So in this, the command, the, the call is to imitate Christ. Do for others, to a degree, what Christ has done for you. Now at this point in Romans 15, having just quoted Psalm 69, Paul adds a parenthesis to this argument that he's been developing. Or perhaps it is a central point to the conclusion to this call to Christian unity. This call to imitate Christ's sacrifice as revealed in God's word will only be sustained by God's word. Turn back with me to Romans 15, verse 4, where he begins, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Let's pause there. Why do you read your Bible. For what reason is what was written beforehand in this book, particularly in this context, everything south of here, why was it written? For our information? No, post-enlightenment has somehow put the center of the human in the mind and says if we can get smart enough, we'll be good enough. But the scriptures are intended for your instruction. They show you how to live. They, yes, tell the story of the narrative of God, but they also show the the call to live as God's people in exile on earth. Meant for your instruction. So that, it is written for your instruction, so that by your endurance... You might have hope. And there is a linear connection between endurance and hope. In Romans 5, Paul wrote, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So what's been written was written for our instruction, so that as we endure... The next clause says we might be encouraged by the scriptures so that we might have hope. So as you are imitating Jesus, as you are enduring in imitating Jesus, by giving of yourself painfully to bear the weaknesses of others, to meet the needs of the neighbor for their good, you will be encouraged, comforted, consoled by the scriptures. And the conclusion of this encouragement is that you might have hope, that you might endure in hope, encouraged by the scriptures. That this vision of even ideal that you hope for, where God and his people dwell together, reconciled as one, might be realized. the hope that bearing the weaknesses of your neighbor and pleasing them for their good will be worth it. That it won't be in vain. Now I hope, as a parent, that one day I will never see 3 a.m. again. I, I really hope that one day I won't have to make another bottle in the middle of the night or change 
four poopy diapers in the middle of the night. And I really particularly hope that one day when I'm old enough and my diapers need to be changed in the middle of the night and I need to be fed in the middle of the night, that the one who I have endured with will be strong enough to help me in that time. Okay, so that maybe is a picture of my hope in this. It's more than that, but it's it's a picture of my hope in this. That will only be realized if today I endure. If I show up again when the, when the baby monitor clicks on in the middle of the night tonight and do it again. Otherwise, my hope will not be realized. I must endure to realize the hope. And in the meantime, <laughs> I need all the encouragement I can get. So as you were to think about this Christian life where you, you hope for this picture where the church is united, living together in perfect peace and unity, reconciled with God and each other, you're enduring in the meantime by bearing with the weaknesses of the weak, by pleasing your neighbor, not yourself. And how are you going to con- connect your endurance with the realization of your hope other than through the encouragement to continue showing up day after day after day? And where will you find that encouragement other than in the scriptures. Now by placing this parenthesis here, right after quoting Psalm 69, I think Paul is using Psalm 69 again as an illustration of this point. So would you flip back with me to Psalm 69 as an illustration of bearing the weaknesses of the weak and pleasing our neighbor instead of ourselves And I want to highlight this principle in action, that Scripture is meant for your instruction, that there is hope, and you must endure, and that the Scripture will encourage you in the meantime. So by means of instruction, Psalm 69 um, really is an invitation that, that we must consider the implications of the life of David and the life of Jesus now, because Paul has interpreted it this way, for our own application and instruction. Now what's happening in Psalm 69 is David prays when he is persecuted by God's enemies, when when God's own people reject him for following the way of Yahweh. And David hopes in God, clinging to God's steadfast love for him. We're instructed about the life of Jesus, the model of Jesus, who prays in a like manner in the Garden of Gethsemane during his passion, where the reproaches of those who have reproached God fell on him in his death. And for us, our instruction in Psalm 69, it it teaches us, it instructs us how we might pray like David and like Jesus when we are reviled and persecuted for following the way of Yahweh. It instructs us that even when we feel abandoned by God and we're at our wit's end in our self-sacrifice for the sake of others, that God is still with us and will answer. So there is some instruction in Psalm 69, but how does Psalm 69 aid or spur our endurance? And it does that by even illustrating the model of endurance that comes before. David endured at the hands of his enemies, spurred by this belief that God would right all wrongs and vindicate his servant, that justice would be restored, and that David would again, once, once again, bask in God's love for him. 
Jesus endured, even when the path led to a cross, with his face set like flint, endured for the joy that was set before him, because he was convinced that God was with him and would keep his promises to him. And so, friends, we are likewise able to rejoice in our sufferings, enduring, trusting that God will one day make all wrongs right and will vindicate his servant. So even when it feels unjust, even when it's difficult, even when it's 3 a.m. and you're bearing the weaknesses of the weak, endure. Now, how does Psalm 69 encourage us? It's beautiful. As, as we follow even David's words, in verse 30, there is a marked change in the tone of this prayer. And he begins to pray. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Yet, the prayer is unanswered. Yet, the words are only just now being written on paper, and uttered out of his mouth. Moreover, in verse 34, all of heaven and earth will praise God for what he is about to do. God reigns. Zion will be delivered. God's enemies will be judged and God's people will dwell securely. Now take that pattern, okay, of of praising God in, the, in spite of the dire circumstance or the frustration, Jesus hangs on the cross. And even yet, God answers him and delivers him and raises him from the grave to the global glory of God with all of creation, proving that the reproaches that Jesus bore on our behalf, for our good, was effective and worth it. So as you consider bearing the weaknesses of the weak, which do not compare to the reproaches against God that Jesus bore on your behalf, would you endure like Jesus? Be encouraged that it will be worth it as it was for Jesus. And this encouragement produces in us hope. It revitalizes hope. Because hope, hope fades. Our hope in this idea or, or of, of perfect unity will fade. Our hope that it will be worth it will fade. But the endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures will keep hope alive. For now we hold on to the promise that as God delivered David, as God delivered Jesus, God will deliver us. That as it was worth it to bear the reproaches of others for God's sake, for David, and for Jesus, so it will be worth it for us to bear with each other's weaknesses. And so... The scripture serves us as we follow Jesus' example. It sustains and encourages as we endure in hope. 
Now, as we seek to follow Jesus' example, sustained by God's word, please turn back with me to Romans 15 as we consider now the goal of all of this, the end to which all of this is pointing. In Romans 15.5, Paul begins now to pray. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Now, on behalf of the divided church in Rome, Paul pauses to pray. And I think that should not be surprising, that in the midst of all the conflict, in the midst of this difficulty, in the, almost the impossibility of the command he's just given, to bear with one another's weakness and to please your neighbor instead of yourself, that we need help in this. That even the strong here don't have enough muscle to show up and will themselves to die to themselves for the sake of their brother. Prayer is, uh, one author says, it humbles us as needy and exalts God as generous. And so by praying at this point, what Paul's doing is saying, you guys are not going to figure this out unless the God who sh- the God of encouragement and endurance shows up and keeps you to the glory of God. Now notice how Paul addresses God. May the God of endurance and encouragement. The same titles that he ascribes to the use of Scripture in the life of the Christian. Through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, you might have hope. Now may the God of endurance and the God of encouragement grant you to live in this way. And I wonder, okay, how is the God of encouragement and the God of endurance going to answer this prayer? I think there's a real chance that he could magically, spiritually activate us But it tells us how God's going to answer this prayer right here. The God of endurance and encouragement through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures will answer you. Now when God speaks, God acts. Let there be light, there is light. And when God speaks, he communicates not mere information, This is not a a user manual. Instead, he instructs. Instead, he illustrates this way to live as the people of God, expecting that his word will accomplish that life in you. I hope that you're beginning to see the centrality of the word as really the connection between your call to imitate Christ and the glory of God. If you omit the second section and you say, I don't need the Bible in my life, then your imitation will be shabby and the glory of God will be compromised. Now his prayer is for the God of endurance and encouragement to grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Now um, think of this harmony. It's, It's a beautiful picture. Really it means of the same mind. But the picture of harmony is beautiful in this case. Because 
The prayer is that we would live this way in spite of our differences. The prayer is not that we would become the same person duplicated 200 times or that we would all drive the same car or look the same way or observe the same days or eat the same foods or think the same things or vote the same way or give the same percentage. In spite of our differences, may God bring unity. And harmony, musically, it's simply um, this idea that two notes, distinct, different, are sung at the same time to make one sound. So I, I figure we should just try this to illustrate. So over here, Mmm, y'all warm up. Singing. Oh, you got that note in your head. Stop. Mmm, you all sing. Oh, you got that note in your head? Oh, 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 oh. All right, over here. Oh, stop. Oh, okay, that's not harmony. That's two different notes sung at two different times, musically divided. It's not harmony. Now we sing, oh, and add an oh. And that's a picture of harmony. Two notes sung together at the same time. The prayer is that the church would experience the same thing where we're singing different things. We're living different ways. We have perhaps different perspectives on life, different freedoms and different degrees of faith. And yet at the same time, those notes can be sung together in unity. This, he says, he prays may be in accord with Christ Jesus. In what sense does it accord with Christ Jesus, this harmony? I think in the sense that this is the will of Jesus, who is the head of the church, and he desires this life for his body. In accord, perhaps in the sense that Jesus perfectly models the humility and selflessness required to live this life. Perhaps even in accord that the sense, in the sense that Jesus takes dead people and makes them alive, transforming them from the inside out that they can even live this way in the first place. But they're all summed up in this phrase, in accord with Christ Jesus. This is how Jesus wants it. This is how Jesus does it. And this is what Jesus is enabling. The goal now, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the language here is indicative of two different kinds of unity. There is an internal unity. That word together literally means of the same mind. Well, not literally. It's communicated as the same mind. It literally means of the same burning. The same burning of one burning within you. And so you immediately begin to think of in. internal unity, the internal things like your passion, your goals, your desires, your delights, your love, would those things be united together? But the internal unity manifests itself externally in one voice. Now, New Life Church, uh, we get the idea of singing unison from this, this verse. 
At New Life Church, there's not a rule that you have to sing the O or the O. You can sing whichever part you want, as long as you're singing the same song as everybody else and that you're singing. And I think that's the point that he's making, the point that he's praying toward, that despite our diversity of mode or method or maturity, that God would graciously grant us both an internal and an external unity by which God is glorified. And this is God's design for the church. God's design is that the church would be united in its, in its being and in its burning as well as in its practice, its serving, its giving, its loving one another. And His design is that the church would function this way to His glory. In fact, all that He has designed is to that end, that He would be glorified. And what is at stake in our unity is presenting the Creator and Covenant Lord as all-magnificent, as all-beautiful, as all-excellent, as all-delightful to this community, to the glory of God. And frankly, a merely tolerant community doesn't accomplish that. Where we just put up with one another, but we actually don't shoulder one another's burdens. We don't show up in the middle of the night to please the other instead of the self. And frankly, a merely homogenous church doesn't accomplish that either, where we're all the same. A strong only church does not accomplish that. The the strong need the not strong. And so, not strong, don't judge the strong for the way they live, for their expression of faith. And neither does a weak-only church accomplish that. We need the strong to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. However, What does accomplish this glory of God is Christians together living in unity, imitating the Jesus they follow, sustained by God's word. That church glorifies God. So may I pray for us to that end. God of endurance, God of encouragement, would you help us? We confess that we are inadequate to live as your people under your authority to your glory unless you transform our selfish and prideful hearts. Please give us the humility of Jesus. Please give us the selflessness of Jesus. Please let us model for each other the sacrifice of Jesus as we bear one another's burden. Would you keep us longing for your word? Would you satisfy us by it? Would you encourage us by it? That we might return again each day to that source of encouragement. Transform our hearts, uniting us in mind and spirit that we might be able to outwardly Sing and pray and serve and give and love to your glory.
Jesus, we follow you and we are full of hope this morning that just as we have followed you in our death to sin and self, we will follow you in the newness and fullness of life in you. Would you help us in your name? Amen.